other souls bearing in depths of my steps left the funny skulls my symbolisms heavy too loud to hear Good morning this is Ellie Newman and you're listening to It's Relationship My guest today is Kate Cox she's an advocate for women's empowerment is a Reiki practitioner holds a master's degree in transpersonal psychology and has been working as a professional jazz singer for the last 4 years We'll be spending the next hour talking about the empowerment of women and how they and she move through the world. Kate, welcome and thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you and um Kate and I actually just met in the coffee shop. We were just talking about it how it's difficult to uh oftentimes meet women and um people when you first move to a town, but I think she's doing pretty well. She's been here for a month so far. Came from Palo Alto. Did you come fr- from Palo Alto? That's where you you no, grew up. No, I I was raised in Palo Alto, but I just moved here from New York City. So that's even a, a bigger change. And um Kate, you hold an undergraduate degree in writing and poetics from the Buddhist in- Institute Naropa University. We actually had another another guest a few months ago who had also been at Naropa, which sounds like an incredible place to study. What led you to study there and to study writing and poetics? You know, I actually I grew up my father was uh, a bit of a poet definitely as a hobbyist and so I grew up with his love of poetry um and then you know the real truth of the matter is at some point I had I had been a singer most of my life and I decided to stop singing and the minute I stopped vocalizing sort of how I felt I realized that I needed to start finding another outlet to express myself creatively had you been writing your own music as well so were no. you expressing yourself that way or just in your choice of songs it was in my choice of songs um and you know for me it was a great opportunity to hide behind um other people's words when i was a singer not to hide but to to put my own embellishment on what other people were saying sort of the masters the you know the american songbook writers but i think when i started to write my own poetry and prose i started to realize that you know every individual has their own way of approaching the world you know and that it's it's important that everybody puts in a unique voice I was going to say and even the if your approach is similar to someone else your voice is going to be different. You know, you look at at the books on the bookshelf and there might be 20 books on the same topic and even saying the same message, but each voice is different and it's going to resonate differently with different people. I absolutely agree with that. It's like actors, you know. I mean, you have a, a million actors out there because, you know, there are a million people that need to be represented. And did you uh when you were studying and studying writing and poetics were you steered towards a certain uh element of study or were you kind of just dove in and 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 exploring all over You know so I went to the school called the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics and I think the name alone was sexy enough for me that I thought oh this is this is the answer That's a good name absolutely um but I liked the idea of um I liked the idea of learning structure and then breaking structure. So the idea of breaking syntax and and how you approach that in the world and still be communicating your thoughts and your feelings without having to force yourself into a a certain literary style. So a lot of Raymond Carver, a lot of um flash fiction, a lot of brief dialogue, you know, things that are are potent but brief. That's what I was really interested in. And was that something new? Uh, for you to experience or was that something that was familiar to you in communicating in that way and expressing yourself in that way it was it was new for me i think i was always a little bit more long-winded before i went to naropa in terms of um being able to distill down what i wanted to say i was also really intrigued by um you know allen ginsberg and jack kerouac and william burroughs uh you know because they had been so educated you know s- you know several of those guys went to the ivy leagues and then decided that they didn't want to partake and they went their opposite ways and of course you know as you read their lives you realize that they were maybe not the best role models to have when you're an 18-year-old <laughs> female but they were they were the first people i had heard of who were wanderers and uh and it was great you know learning learning about the beat poets i was always really interested in philosophy that took me to Jean-Paul Sartre and then that took me to Simone de Beauvoir and that's the first woman I had and wanders in their uh lives their physical lives but also in their minds absolutely absolutely wanders in their mind and what I thought was you know what I liked the most about Ginsberg is that you know he had a great mind to walk the fields of and so what was it like when you discovered Simone de Beauvoir was that like an aha like okay we're clicking here that was probably you know there are probably two books in my life that absolutely changed my life the first one was uh virginia wolfs a room of one's own and that for me was like i kind of realized that if i could just get a little bit of money and get my own space in the world i would have kind of won the war 
of And of how old were you when you discovered that? That certainly isn't something that's, I think, basic reading at Palo Alto. <laughs> that's right. It's probably true. Uh, I was, any school, public or private? You know, I was probably 17, and then I, I probably got reintroduced to it again when I was in college. Um, but I, I really, I really liked the way that she's. I, write, I liked the way she wrote, you know. And then I, I wrote my senior thesis on Simone de Beauvoir's *The Second Sex* because I liked also she wrote very authoritatively um, about issues that are very ambiguous, you know, kind of what it's like to be a woman in the world. And I mean, I remember this is. I mean, I remember, I remember reading her parts about, you know, why is it that virginity is such an important matter? What is this about? What does this represent as a woman and this uncharted territory and being conquered by? the male or what I mean I was all very heated back when I was you know 19 or 21 or whatever but I remember thinking wow this is the first time I've ever heard a female talk about the things that I'm wrestling with as a young female in the world and so I want to I want to learn more about her and she was just so mind-blowingly smart that I I fell in love with her and was your music a part big part of your life still then or you used to put it on hold was it really on hold it was really on hold it was it was so on hold that I wouldn't sing in the car I mean, it was on hold. I had wanted to be this, you know, this Broadway actress um, or some sort of a professional singer until I was 17. And actually, the truth of the matter is my parents got divorced and I think I was shell-shocked from it. And I think we all find ways to silence ourselves when we're terrified and and scared. And so I just, I shut down and I stopped singing. And, um, you know, the other thing about it also, to be honest, is that uh, it was something I was really very good at when I was younger. And... I think I wanted to see whether or not I was good at other things. You know, I didn't want it to be just the one thing that made me beautiful. Um, and I think, too, we're, we're steered often by others and by ourselves, by society, to do the things we're good at. And, oh, you're good at that, so you should do it. And it's nice that you had the awareness to test it and say, okay, I'm good at this. <laughs> Is there something else that I'm also good at or something maybe that I'm really terrible at but that I love doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think I learned both. More often that I was terrible at things, but I... But I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, you know, and it's that it is that nuance. You are you're you're you know whatever they pay attention to when you're a little child is what you will get better at. If you're a soccer player and they take you to all the AYSO games, you get better at it. You know, and um, it be, it's an important element I think to childhood. The ten thousand hours, right? The exactly. Beatles played for ten thousand hours. Exactly. They weren't that good before. Yeah. Exactly. And you then received a master's degree in transpersonal psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, was there something in what you were studying as an undergrad that made you want to dig deeper into this area that led you into that area? You know, I'm sure on some level that was happening because, you know, storytelling is basically a discussion of psychology. Um, veiled, but a discussion of psychology. And, you know, the truth of the matter is at the time I had gotten quite sick. And so I was back home in San Francisco and just kind of taking care of myself and, you know, getting to hang out with my mom, which was wonderful. And I started to really think about the intersections of how we get sick, and I, I, I ended up having lupus, but we didn't know what I had at the time, and so it was very vague and uh, quite serious. And I was aware of the fact that it was most likely not the result of, you know, getting H. pylori when I was in India. It was probably something more stress-related, um, and maybe even deeper than that. And so I started. I think I must have gone to psychology school because I wanted to learn more about myself. I wanted to learn more about women. I wanted to learn more about my family. I also think I knew when I was like eight years old that I would definitely have to go to psychology school for a graduate degree so I would take, be taken more seriously. I would have more validity to what I was saying, you know. I was going to ask if there was a place you, you could see that needed healing or changing in women's lives, but it's just it started from a place in your own life Absolutely. That, that needed healing and changing. And then maybe got connected to the the outside community while you were there. And what was the study there like? Was it what you had expected? Were the answers that you were looking for? Did you find them there? You know, I, I did. I found a lot of the answers there. I, what I really found was I found sort of the library in a way. You know, I found all of the the contributing voices to the to the discourse. And that for me was, was most groundbreaking. I, you know, my mother and I always joke that, you know, in order to graduate from graduate school, you have to go and have an internship. And so you had to go be a psychotherapist. And I was so startled at the time because I just really wanted to Study, study it, it and actually do do something ex- with it. Exactly. I wasn't sure if I wanted to have the authority to quote unquote heal somebody at that moment in my life, but I, I did get to go do an internship and it was wonderful. But 
Which is hard when you're young and you're, you haven't had the life experience. You may be able to understand it or appreciate it, but if you haven't had it, I think to be put in a position where you're then counseling someone that has lived through these experiences, it's definitely a little discomforting. Oh, it's, it's you know, it, yeah. You would hope that everybody who, you know, you would hope it would be a sage that would shepherd your soul up the mountain kind of, you know, and I'm sure having a 26-year-old bright-eyed, you know, girl in front of you while you talk about divorce or breast cancer is probably quite overwhelming. I, I do have to say, though, as I've gotten older, and not much older at that, but as I've gotten older, I've noticed that it it actually isn't about age. It's really just about, matter. yeah, the capacity to just bear witness for people, I think, and to hear Absolutely. them, really. Absolutely. Um, we were just talking about Kate's experience at learning or studying transpersonal psychology in California. And Kate, you said you studied the nuances of our inner psychologies and our capacity to hear ourselves and create supportive atmospheres for reaching our optimal health. Uh, you talked about, and I think you're spot on, that really listening to someone and having them feel that they've been heard and seen is critical. What did you discover about being able to hear ourselves and our capacity to do that? I think that hearing yourself is probably the most nuanced art form there is on on the earth right now. I am um, and I think that's why we have therapists and healers and girlfriends and best friends and mothers and you know so that we can have them hear us and then reflect it back. I think one of the hardest things for me was that, you know, for at least for my 20s, it was the undressing the garments of the shoulds, you know, of who I should be, how it should go, proving that I could be that, um, proving that I had the right to stand shoulder to shoulder with the women of the world, you know. And so I think for me, it, it, it learning to hear yourself has been a very tricky game for me. And that's pretty incredible to me that that for you clearly happened in your 20s. I think women of my generation, it took us a whole lot longer to get to that place. And I think we actually stayed on the train of the shoulds for a lot longer, sort of coming out that first generation after the the women's movement. I want to talk about that a little later. But to me, it's incredible that you were able to do it so early and, and, and not have to kind of go through all of the experiences of realizing that maybe those shoulds weren't satisfying or fulfilling or a fit for you. What do you think led you to be able to really question society's norms that early on? I would definitely say it was all the generations of women before me. I mean, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, I mean, what are we in the fifth wave of feminism or something like that now? And, it, and you know, it, it is a huge privilege to be able to, to question who you should be in the world as a woman and to question who you are in the world as a woman um, and definitely a luxury at that. But I wouldn't have been allowed to do it had I not, you know, kind of sat at the knee of my mother and, and had her talk to me honestly about the decisions that she made in her life. And, you know, my mother particularly is an interesting person. She doesn't hold a lot of regrets, but she is quite, quite objective about looking at her past and sort of, you know, when, you know, for example, deciding to get married when she was young and not wanting to get married because she just didn't want to be a burden to her mother. And, you know, then turning that around and saying, you know, you can't live your life being afraid of burdening me. And therefore, you know, the way you're going to make me happy is to find your own freedom. You have to go find your freedom, you know. But, you know, she and I wrestle a lot with a conversation about, you know, I think that the shoulds exist for a reason, right? They, <laughs> There is something very substantial in in this concept of you should do this, you should do that. You should drink water, you should exercise, you should eat healthy. Some Sometimes, most of the time, they're correct. But I think the danger is created when there's a norm that's developed and it becomes such a narrow, narrow area of where that should is. Mm -hmm. And so there's no variation as far as individuality and so everyone should drink eight cups of water instead of we all need to drink enough water to be healthy. How much water is that for you? Absolutely. I completely you make an it's an excellent point. You make an excellent point about that. It's it it is that. And I think I was as I was saying it, the minute I said that sentence, I was like, uh oh, I don't know if I agree with what I just said, but but there's aspects of it that you agree with and, and that are is. valid in well, our also, society. It, you know, when it comes to factual things, even though we, I think we, we are all learning now that, the, like you said, the water, you know, how much do you need? What is it you individually need, right, is, is coming to light. But I think a lot of people are using that word should when it comes to opinion, right, and, and basically trying to keep society controlled. 
and to validate their own choices. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right. You, you know, if you have friends that have gotten married and have children and and you aren't, it's like, oh, you know, when are you getting married? Why aren't you married? You should have some kids. And it's to validate maybe a choice that they either aren't completely satisfied with or feeling some insecurity about. Because if you're happy with your choice, I don't think you really care if other people are, are making the same one. I absolutely agree. I think that the the very, I think that you just hit on for me the intersection that's so important, which is do you know if you're happy with your choice? Was it a choice? You know, there are certain things in life that there aren't choices. And, and, so. and I was thinking that earlier when you were talking about your conversation to, with your mother, how wonderful for her to have opened that door for you, that you have options, that you have choices, and that you're going to have to take responsibility for making them and for the consequences of those. And that it's going to be something that is is going to serve you well to reason through. Yeah. I think that's right. I also think, you know, I think women, especially this conversation about, like, you, know, you should be married, you should have children, you know, we, there's no permission for ambiguity as a woman. And so, you know, if I'm I'm only 32, but let's say if for some reason I don't have children, I will get th- immediately thrust to the other side of the track where it's going to say that I made some sort of a political statement by not having children as opposed to saying, I just didn't know if I wanted to or I'm figuring that out or you know, we're supposed to have a definitive answers for these things. And I think it's great, too, that you say you're only 32. Again, my generation would be like, oh, my God, I'm 30. I'm not married. I'm going to have kids. You know, the world does. The sky is falling. So that's <laughs> Well, fantastic. I'm working on that, that, that hopefulness. So. So you also talked about uh, our capacity to create supportive atmospheres for reaching our, our optimal health. And uh, how did that play into the connection of being heard and hearing ourselves? It, I think that for I think for every human being, it starts your supportive atmosphere, sort of your body, right? So that's the easiest thing to work on. And I know that that's not easy for a lot of people because so many things can go wrong, and myself included. But you know, you can start with just sort of creating an actual space inside yourself physically, you know, where you're healthy and hormones are moving and then you just work out right so then you work emotionally mentally spiritually and I think you realize quite quickly that it's community-based and you have to have a solid friendship circle and you know but I think that when we talk about supportive spaces especially in the world of psychology we make it sound like you have to come to an office and come to a therapist and we're going to support you in this confidential paradigm but I think really the truth of the matter is you know the, the most supportive space you can create is the one where you talk to your intuition and you truly, truly trust yourself. And then you can just kind of move from there. It's incredibly hard to do, but that is what I mean by creating supportive spaces. And I think it takes years, if not decades, but... And also maybe internally to have dialogue with that internal voice that has adopted all of our parental or societal or even our own shoulds along the way and learn to sort of quiet that down so that we can hear the other voice that maybe is the intuition that has been not being listened to for many people for a long time. Oh, I mean, I I shut down my intuition for... I mean, maybe a good 17 years. I mean, a long time I shut down my intuition. It just was going to work better. It was more adaptable for everybody around me if I just sort of went with the flow. And, you know, I mean, I've, you can imagine I've always been opinionated, but I I wasn't very good at hearing my own intuition. And I really had to learn that art and that. Well, it's hard. funny when you just said that I got an image of, you know, the, the witches in Salem being, being burned. And I thought, you know, we... The the role of women and the boundaries of sort of acceptable behavior and the role for them in society has been, you know, there are so many complexities to it that we haven't even looked at. Like, yeah, okay, now maybe there's been a lot of movement since the women's movement, a lot of empowerment, a lot of changes. But that element of intuition, right? Oh. If, if you were listening to that and sort of acting with those psychic powers, you were going to be burned at the stake. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If not, you know, I, you know just as a side note, like... I have gotten much better at listening to my intuition. I'm standing in Sun Valley today because my intuition said, you know, it's time to go to the mountains. And, you know, it's it's hysterical to watch me try to talk to people about it because they ask me, you know, why I came. And we all know why we're in Sun Valley. We're here because it's beautiful and it's a high quality of life and intelligent people live here. But ultimately to have to just admit out loud, you know, I don't, I don't know why I'm here. I just knew it was time to come. When also, you know, you are intelligent. You're high, you've been highly educated. So to say, I'm not going to listen to my intellect. I'm not going to listen to reason on this. I'm going to just make a decision based on, on intuition, which is a hunch. And is always right. But to be able to balance that, the, the, the um, support and confidence you have in your intellect, 
oh, with yeah. with a, a feeling. Oh, and it's I mean it's, it's brave it, and horrifying. I mean brave it's, and horrifying. You know. <laughs> and do you think that men typically have an easier time of it in our society? to hear themselves, be heard, uh, create an atmosphere of support? Or do you think it's equally challenging or just challenging in different ways? You know, I think a part of me would love if that were the case, because then I would just ask them to I would call them up and say, you know, lead the charge on how we do this. I, I, I think, though, you know, I, I have to say I've done so much research and studying on women that I, I, I don't have enough information on men. But I can tell you, I had this great conversation this summer at a, a social activism workshop this really intelligent man, and and he basically pleadingly said to me, you know, I know you're working on women's empowerment, but will you please include us in the practice of of how you train people? And I you and know. I know Brene Brown had the same experience when she was doing the work on vulnerability, that's and she right. had men coming up to her saying, "Well, that's great, you've been talking about women, but you know, what about us?" Yeah, and I think that you know, I think that I mean, and this is maybe a time for another conversation, but I think you know, I think that there is a war on men, and that's there's been you know a lot of news cycle has been going back and forth over the last four years about, you know, kind of the downfall of man or, or what have you. But And I want to talk about that a little later, um, about the the idea of empowerment and power and it being an issue of power and power, because power then is a power balance and a power struggle. And if you have power, did you take the power from someone else? And does someone lose it if you have more? So if we have time, definitely want to talk about that a little later. Do you think the challenges are specific? that there are challenges that are specific to women through your studies of studying women more than men? Were there challenges you found that these seem like they are bigger challenges for women than they are for men, although men have their own? Absolutely. I think that, I mean, this is where it gets really controversial, right? Because whatever I say next will pigeonhole women. But I will say that I I think we're inherently um, pleasers. And I mean, you know, you, you look at the studies of, there's this great study that just came out and it said, you know, you had the high, the smartest little boys in the class, the smartest little girls in the class in the math class and they're, you know, third grader, God knows what age it was. And, you know, you, you give them a problem they've never had before and, and the girls will stop trying. They just sort of shut down and, that, and the boys will try because there, there's something in them that, that, first of all, they're trained by us, you know, sort of constantly regulate themselves, you know, stop running about, stop being so loud, sit still. And girls were so well-behaved and so kind of self-contained that we lose that training to to fail, to try, you know, to keep trying, to keep showing up. And so we have this, it's an interesting balance. I notice I, I have brilliant women friends and I notice that there's this weird dichotomy between, you know, these women are so smart on one area, but they're so afraid to try on another area. And it's such an interesting intersection because, you know, you have such smart women out there who haven't learned the art of, practice of practice and failure and maybe stepping out right stepping out being right. seen being trouble uh, you know you said you didn't want to be a burden to your mom like you know women from the get-go I think are trained to you're getting accolades for being quiet for being well behaved for not really being seen for not obstructing right I agree with that being trouble I love the way you, you phrase that it's true because I think I think in the female world you know being trouble really is you know very, very slight compared to the male world. When oh, you're yeah. I mean, trouble. if you're a teenager, right, she's trouble. Could there be? <laughs> or yeah. like, you know, between the kids, the moms, the teachers, anyone, oh, she's trouble. So let's talk about empower, empowering women. Um, the dec- de- la, 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 la. I'll start over. The <laughs> dictionary's definition of empowered, yeah, that's going to be edited out when <laughs> day, is to give someone the authority or power to do something. That's the first one. Um, the second one, I think, is a little bit more about uh, clear on what we're talking about, but they're connected in a way, which is to make someone stronger and more confident, especially in controlling their life and claiming their rights. And I think about when we talk about empowering women, it sort of comes from this idea of emancipating and unshackling and uh, liberating and then you know boosting up or strengthening. And I'm wondering, one, what your definition is, and uh, we'll talk about that and then and how, how one becomes empowered. You know, I, I, it's funny. I did the exact same practice this morning, which was I looked up in, what empowered means in the dictionary. And I, I thought it was interesting that it was this concept of, you know, it's about authority, it's about power, but the definition inherently says it's to give. It comes right? from the outside. Right. And, uh, and that seems wrong to me. Yeah. Right? It, it seemed sounds, wrong to me, too. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like I healing. took issue with that. Yeah. It's like, you know, we talk about healing. We, we talk about, like, you know, we have these healers. And it's like, no, no, no. These, these people should be called guides. You know, people who teach you how to heal yourself. And I, I, you know, I think that 
I love the idea of the boosting up and, and the emancipating. You know, I have to say that, you know, granted, I understand that we have an issue right now still in our society in terms of the political rights of women, in terms of what we're allowed to do with our bodies and what have you. And I don't know why that's still a problem. But I can tell you that. And the answer to that is probably the answer to all the things we're asking in this conversation. That's that's probably true. The great thing, though, is I had to say, and again, this does speak to the generations before me, you know, there was a lot of brush that got cleared in, you know, four decades, five decades. And so I don't have to sit here and argue about, you know, abortion. And I don't have to have this be a brand new conversation that we're having or that I should be allowed to have a career or that I should be allowed to make more money than men or, you know, there was a lot of heavy labor that got taken care of that's allowed me to sort of sit back and start to look more internally in terms of those shackles that, you know, I I would love to be able to blame somebody or point point the finger at somebody who created that should, you know, shackling that we were talking about earlier, but, really it's coming from within and 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 really that voice it's you know I, I try to find that inner critic you know is it my mother is it my grandmother is it my father and it's it's nobody it's really just some bizarre little mechanism in my own soul that is quite hard on myself in terms of being perfect you know and so well I think that's true but I also think there are definitely subtle and non-subtle societal influences I remember I think it was two years ago we were watching the Super Bowl and my daughter at that time was 11 and I turned off the TV during the commercials because it's like are you kidding me these are still the images and the messages that we're giving to our kids and and our adults and I didn't want her to see it. I, I I love you for saying that. I have to tell you, there's this great you know great website called Upworthy.com, and it's on your Facebook feeds and what have you. And basically, it just is social justice and things like this. And they've been bringing about the conversation about women. And I know that we're going to talk about the shrinking woman at some point. But what is so brilliant about it is I had I was looking at Facebook over the last month or whatever, and I realized suddenly that there was a war on women and that we were being objectified and all this. And I thought it was so interesting that somebody as educated as I am, who's been so poignantly paying attention to this, completely failed to notice about objectification. And sort of here I was at 32, recognizing that a lot of everything that I was told to do in my life was regulated by that mass media. And and that's where empowerment becomes interesting because on one level, it's quite sexually empowering for women, you know, and kind of love your body and be out there and be sexual, be crazy. And at the same time, it's quite imprisoning, you know? Well, and I think there is still a real conflict between, like, it's wonderful to sit here and you say, oh, I can make more money than a man. I can make my choices. I can have a career. I can have kids. I can make these choices. And I'm thinking, wow, does she really really believe that there aren't consequences? And I'm, and how wonderful would that be if that's now the case? But that, you know, you aren't going to suffer in a relationship with a man who is threatened by the idea that you're making more money than he is. Like, has it really changed? And I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that much um, and and wondering if there still are those elements in the practice the reality of living that way that are, are still going to be suffered and experienced by women I mean I was thinking you you have women I, I was listening to something on CNN the other day and they were talking about um, misrepresenting the Muslim community and they were saying you know look at all these Muslim nations that have women as their leaders and I thought yeah that's true and we need to focus on that but how are these women in daily society being treated? Is there still, you know, issues of respect and value that are not on, on an equal basis? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And it's easy for me to to say the things I said earlier because, you know, I'm, I'm a single female in the world. And I at least know that if I don't get married and have children, I won't be condemned as a spinster. Uh, I will be seen, whether or not I want to or not, as sort of an empowered woman that chose myself and loving myself over a man or whatever. And that's it's very tricky business because I because I, you know, I'd love to get married. I would love to find that that equilibrium in a relationship with a male. And I think it has to exist because, and this is my my rule of thumb for everything, which is if I exist, others must. You know what I mean? So if I'm somebody who's willing to have this conversation and figure out how to be a female without having to lose my whole soul to it, you know, into relationship, we'll see. But it is... I think you've got good odds because there's like 7 billion (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about empowering versus developing a sense of equal value and from internal sense of value and externally and external and internal respect. So it seems like that is really where the strength comes from in being empowered. Um, What's your perspective on that? 
So you're saying that the strength and empowering comes from developing equal respect for the genders or the... I guess I'm, I'm trying to point out and, and, and draw it out a little bit, the differentiation between being empowered or the idea of someone else giving us power and sort of, here, we're undoing your chains and we're handing you this power. And to me, that more gives us a free environment within which to develop a sense of power. Like, that isn't really going to give us a sense of power just by taking off our shackles. We might be like, okay, I'm still feeling really scared here. Yeah. What do I now I'm do with it? Right? Yeah, still yeah, exactly. malnourished. Still don't have a lot of options, a lot of choices. Don't feel a sense of strength or confidence in my ability. So where does that come from? A sense of empowerment, of from you feeling, an individual feeling a sense of empowerment of being empowered well I think you just I think you perfectly framed what's going on right now in the world for women is that you know we have had the kind of the shackles taken off it's quite an intense image but we have you know we've <laughs> guess with Amy <laughs> but you know and, and I think you can and I'm, the picture I have is you know these sort of these these women staggering out sort of you know again malnourished haven't seen the live day and and suddenly they're asked okay fine well you want to you want to play fair and free and great what do you want to do and it's like well we have to repair our souls we have to you know, and I think that we're well into that repairing of our souls. And, you know, I, it's funny, I, you know, the questions of equality are always so interesting to me and the questions of feminism fe- feminism and all that. And, you know, my, my gut reaction is I'm going to say it, although it might be controversial, is this isn't about equality. This is about stepping forward. And whoever wants to step forward with me should should meet me there. You know, kind of is this idea of I don't know if I want to be equal to anything as much as I just want to be my best self. Do you know what I mean by that? I do. I I think because, um, again, my generation, we gained a tremendous amount from the women's movement, right? The shackles were taken off. And I think we ended up, many of us, feeling that we should be super women. And rather than validating different choices and giving us a freedom in defining and realizing who we are and then making choices uh, in alignment with that, it was like, okay, now you're supposed to go and do everything. You're now equal to men. So now you should do everything they're doing. And you should do it the way they're doing it. And you should do it equally. So you should be a partner in the law firm. But you also need to be a mom because if you don't well then you're just a biatch and something's wrong with you right you're you're you know they just did even a study recently I mean that was 25 years ago that I was in law school and they've done a study recently where they took identical resumes and on one set they put a woman's name and on the other set they put a man's name and they asked um people to read them and then say how did what personality did they think these people were and did they think they'd like them and everyone thought they'd really like the guy and almost all the people thought oh no they didn't think they'd like the woman she must be very aggressive and kind of nasty and not very nice and so it really hasn't that element hasn't changed that much but instead of sort of taking women and saying okay you know what it's great to stay home and have kids if that's what you want to do and that's valid and you'll you're valued and and we will respect that it was kind of you couldn't win because if you just did that oh my gosh you're an educated woman why waste all that education you're intelligent you shouldn't be at home raising your children and then if you were just out being a partner at the law firm well then something you were were you know rather non-feminine and there was something wrong with you then too well i think it's i mean it's such a so my mother has um you know, maybe three, three or four degrees, and one of them is a law degree. And she, so is a very educated woman. And I have to say that, you know, I can't, you know, I, I don't come down on either side of this. I don't think that, you know, women should definitely be working or women should definitely be in the home. But I have to tell you, like, probably if anybody thinks I'm intelligent, it's because my mother raised me, you know, and that she was all hands in on that, you know. And so, are you really wasting your education, you know, raising, you know, the next generation? I don't, I don't think that's a fair paradigm. But I, but I do also think that, um, you know, when we're talking about this issue of equality, I think one of the things that is that is a real a real crime kind of is that there is there is no value of what women hold that is different than men in our society. So you know, sometimes it's minimized or sometimes it's like way overvalued, which is you know this idea of mothering or whatever. And mothering is great. That is that is a fundamental element of being a female. And I think we do it with our friends. We do it with our. We do it with everybody, not just our children. But more importantly, you know, we what we do is very. Again, nuance just seems to be the word, and and you know we have the capacity to to hear people and to and to rope them into conversations and to have them tell us how they feel and have them feel seen and heard and 
and you know there is a there's a feeler element to us that isn't valued enough you know that that we just need more female energy running through the rivers and being valued equally that's i guess where i would say equality matters in terms of you know it's you know, kind of like apples and oranges, but you need both, you know, kind of, or kale and apples. You know, you need different vitamin supplements, but they're both extraordinarily important. And one's not more valuable than the other. But I agree with you. I don't want to be equal to a man. Also because I don't think men have been at all given the opportunity that I was given, which is to answer this call and to rise up and to, not even to rise up, but just to stand up for myself and see if I can really push the boundaries of how extraordinary I want to be as a person meaning my capacity to have relationships and to find something that I'm passionate about in a career. And I think that men have been left in the dust and nobody's calling them up. And I think that, you know, the, the worst thing you can do to a child is not give them tough love and ask them to be their best self. And I feel like men and a whole just haven't had that opportunity that I had. And and to be their best self and their self yeah. their self actualized to the the limit that it can be rather than again stepping into a mold and then trying to push the men over so that we can share the mold with them right and i think that's where the the term of equality can get messed up and also get in the way of of women's um and men's relationships and men's acceptance of women having more quote-unquote power because they aren't going to be threatened if it's not taking the power from them. Well, and I think we also we make the mistake all the time of thinking of, I make this mistake all the time, of thinking of power as sort of a manipulation device. It's sort of president of the United States, it's the CEO. But, you know, if you think about power really is just, it's what creates electricity. Do you know what I mean? If you think about it from that perspective, that power is just a fuel source, that it's not something that is... Uh, it's an unlimited source, right? It, it can come from anywhere. You can. I, I get personal power from being in the mountains. You know, it's it's not somebody doesn't have that capital and they're going to give me that power. There's other words for it. You know, opportunity, money. You know, these things. Those. That's a different issue. But I think when we think if we can undress the word power and put it more in the perspective of just the opportunity to shed light, we can all get it. You know. Let's talk a little bit about women and education. And with that, the the corporate structure. Um, are you familiar with Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In? I am familiar with it. And and did you read it? I, I or, read or bits and pieces bits of it, pieces. yes, absolutely. And, and so with your, so she's kind of, I think, a generation maybe in between the two of us. Um, what how, Did it resonate with you? Did it seem like that maybe was something that was more of your mother's issues? Or where, where did that lie? Well, you know, I had to tell you, we, I was telling my mother about this interview, and we were talking about it yesterday, and I said, she's going to talk to me about Sheryl Zandberg's Lean In, and we both started laughing because I... I've had the privilege, and I would say it like this, to avoid the corporate environment. And so I haven't really had to really wrestle with that. That being said, she did, and I've known it very intimately. And I think that's probably why I've stepped, I've sidestepped around it. I also just wasn't where my passion was. But one of my favorite things that Cheryl Sandberg does say is she has this whole concept of, you know, don't leave until you leave. And um, I have to say, I was talking to a girlfriend of mine earlier today who just met this man that she's crazy about. And you know, already it was sort of like, well, I don't know if I can move there, and I don't know if he can move here, and I don't know how we're going to do this. And it, it was that same concept of, let's just go day by day here. Let's not plan the future. And there's an impatience, and there's a brilliance to women where they do plan things out. But that whole idea of don't leave until you leave, don't don't walk away until you've played your hand. You know, and I, that for me has been resonating throughout my mind ever since that book came out of. How, how often in my life do I do I leave before it's time or do I end a relationship because I just don't see marriage or, you know, a Which may house. go back to that third grader you were talking about that doesn't want to make a mistake and doesn't want to act out and uh, be abstractive. And doesn't want to get hurt. You know, I, hurt. I, I work at the YMCA Child Watch and this wonderful mother was talking about how she has three sons and one and her youngest is a girl. And, you know, they say that, Girls can just hear better physically. They can hear better when they're little. And so, you know, if you yell at this little girl, she just dissolves into tears. And so, I, you know, I think about that and it's like, I think a lot of women are very, very tough cookies these days because we just don't want to get hurt. And so we're trying constantly to plan out how to not get hurt. And maybe as you said, if that element of feeling and that ability that women tend to have um, in maybe a larger quantity than most men was respected and valued, we might not have such trouble dealing with it. 
yeah. on a day-to-day basis and, and where, where its place fits in our lives. Yeah, and I, and I have to say, you know, as a side note, which is that, you know, I've, I, I, I've dated quite frequently, being that I'm a young single woman. And what I find to be most interesting is most of the men, and I understand it's a particular sample group that I'm working with, but most of the men are completely aware of my feminine qualities, more so than I am. They're aware of the fact that I intuitively might make a decision that doesn't make sense to them, but they'll trust it. They're aware of the fact that I'll have feelings that I can't explain, but that are important and should be valued. And you know, that I remember the first man who ever told me about that, I remember thinking, this, this is earth shattering. I didn't know I had this inside of myself. I thought I was just bordering on hysteria half the time, you know? And so I really do have to say, you know, the question does rest in where am I getting that information from? If the men I'm talking to know about my values, know about not my values, but you know what I can bring to the table, and I don't know it, who in God's name has taught me not to know what I bring to the table? So recently, I, I interviewed um, six twelve-year-olds, and during the interview, we were talking about twelve-year-old girls and talking about middle school. And we talked about the new trend in advertisement. There's a Pantene video, and I can't remember the company, always, that's the other one. And one is Sorry Not Sorry, where they show women in these situations where typically, you know, we say we're sorry, and we really aren't the one who needs to be saying that. And so the new term is sort of Sorry Not Sorry. And the other one was Run Like a Girl. And I'm wondering, how those resonate with you and sort of you feel with your generation and and are things changing god i hope so um i I mean i really i really hope so i I think that the children that my generation will have will be the groundbreakers i really believe that i mean because there are also these ads out right now for example where it shows about girls learning about engineering and they kind of set this play structure this whole chitty chitty bang bang thing in their house you know and and you know, women can be engineers, women can be scientists and mathematicians. And I think that that is that opportunity of pushing away the brush. But you know, the sorry thing is, it's a, it's a, it's tough. You know, it's part of it is just it's it's a an homage, right, of saying I value you and I don't want to hurt you. Well, and when we had the show, there was a caller. I think it was our first caller ever, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, you know, maybe you could tell the girls to say excuse me." And I thought he said, "Because manners are important." And I thought, "Oh, it's just such a subtle issue." Yeah. It really is a subtle issue, and I, and I think that, you know, I, I think that, I, I don't know, every woman I talk to seems to, especially when it comes to relationships with men, that seems to be where everything gets really highlighted, is that they believe intrinsically they've done something wrong. And I, I don't know where they get that from. I don't know. Well, I mean, my generation, you you know, someone kicks you and you sort of say, sorry, sorry I was in your way. Yeah. You know, you're at the supermarket or something. Oh, God. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. bad. It's pretty <laughs> bad. We're getting better. It's so definitely getting better. That's terrible. I mean, I think that, and I think also, you know, I think a lot of what my generation's dealing with is how can you in a feminine way assert boundaries, right? So how do you not say, I'm sorry, but still not, you know, kind of say like, you know, back off, asshole. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you deal with that? I think I just swore. But how do you... Also a first. Also a first. Sorry about this, the listeners. But, you know, the question is, you know, how, how can you be, not that women have to be gentle and kind and nice, but more importantly, for at least for me, I would like a little bit more permission to be like that because... I'd like to be able to be strong and assert my boundaries and and let you know what you can and can't do with me or with my body or with my heart or whatever it is and have control over that. But I I just, I don't need to be Lara Croft in order to do that. I'd like to be able to be all of it. All right, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna play a poem by Lily Myers. Uh, It's called The Shrinking Woman. It was to be a personal expression and was a video of her recital at a 2013 College National Poetry Slam contest. It went viral, had three million views. The poem tells the story of a woman in her uh, women in her family who, for generations, have been taught to unconsciously shrink while making space for men in their lives. So we might not play the whole thing because we are running um, out out of time, but we'll just play a bit of it, and then uh, anyone can find it on the internet if they're is- interested in listening. So here we go. Across from me at the kitchen table, my mother smiles over red wine that she drinks out of a measuring glass. She says she doesn't deprive herself, but I've learned to find nuance in every movement of her fork, in every crinkle in her brow as she offers me the uneaten pieces on her plate. I've realized she only eats dinner when I suggest it. I wonder what she does when I'm not there to do so. 
Maybe this is why my house feels bigger each time I return. As she shrinks, the space around her seems increasingly vast. She wanes while my father waxes. His stomach has grown round with wine, late nights, oysters, poetry, a new girlfriend who was overweight as a teenager, but my dad reports now she's crazy about fruit. It was the same with his parents. As my grandmother became frail and angular, her husband swelled to red, round cheeks, rotund stomach, and I wonder if my lineage is one of women shrinking, making space for the entrance of men into their lives, not knowing how to fill it back up once they leave. I have been taught accommodation. My brother never thinks before he speaks. I have been taught to filter. How can anyone have a relationship to food, he asks, laughing, as I eat the black bean soup I chose for its lack of carbs. I want to say we come from difference, Jonas. You have been taught to grow out. I have been taught to grow in. You learn from our father how to commit, how to produce, to roll each thought off your tongue with confidence. You used to lose your voice every other week from shouting so much. I learned to absorb. I took lessons from our mother in creating space around myself. I learned to read the knots in her forehead while the guys went out for oysters. And I never meant to replicate her, but spend enough time sitting across from someone and you pick up their habits. That's why women in my family have been shrinking for decades. We all learn it from each other, the way each generation taught the next how to knit, weaving silence in between the threads, which I can still feel as I walk through this ever-growing house. Skin itching, picking up all the habits my mother has unwittingly dropped, like bits of crumbled paper from her pocket on her countless trips, from bedroom to kitchen to bedroom again. Nights I hear her creep down to eat plain yogurt in the dark, a fugitive stealing calories to which she does not feel entitled. Likes is too many, how much space she deserves to occupy. Watching the struggle, I either mimic or hate her, and I don't want to do either anymore, but the burden of this house has followed me across the country. I asked five questions in genetics class today, and all of them started with the word sorry. I don't know the capstone sociology major because I spent the whole meeting deciding whether or not I could have another piece of pizza. A circular obsession I never wanted, but inheritance is accidental. Still staring at me with wine-soaked lips from across the kitchen table. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on its relationship. So, Kate, let's talk about we t- were talking about it during the break while the poem was playing, the the mother-daughter relationship and the role that plays in this sort of transition of empowerment of the next generations of women and women who have not grown up with maybe a sense of empowerment or they've had the shackles off, but they were trying to fit into the men's world. So they have not been doing it in a very conscious manner and have maybe alienated elements of themselves that are the more feminine, maybe not as respected in society or just in the struggle of dealing with the role and the, the gender issues. And if you could a little bit explain what you were saying about the what you've seen in the relationship between mothers and daughters and and women's um, young women's especially taking the the role of of uh, carrying other people's burdens. You know, it's it's like you know maybe the most important topic to me is uh, is this conversation, um, and I love what this woman says where she says inheritance is accidental, and I don't know if that's the quite correct phrasing, but. You know, the, if there's anything that the generations before me must start doing yesterday is they have to start to start taking responsibility for who they are as women for their daughters. Um, we were saying during the break that, you know, the greatest thing I think about women that they don't get enough credit for is that we're workhorses. You know, we'll do anything, but what we really are is we're emotional workhorses. We'll carry the burdens of anyone. And it doesn't have to do with birth order. I think it has to do with whether or not you're female. And I think that, you know, my own mother and I have definitely gone through this dance of, you know, you carry their silences, you carry, and it's, you know, the, the best way to describe it is, it, we were saying this earlier, that it, there is a subtlety to being a female and and you can, and you know, women when they compete with each other, it's all very subtle and, and you can have a woman nearly drown, you know, a daughter because 
she just isn't brave enough to look at herself in the mirror. And the great thing is you, you get daughters like this woman who just said this poem and you know her mother's going to have to, you know, probably to her own horror, turn around, look in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm affecting my child. I didn't mean to do that, you know. But there is one element to being female that I don't think we talk about often, which is that there's an infectiousness. And, and what I mean by that is both positive and negative, but we can infect each other with our fears. And it is energy and it is subtle in its tone and it's none of it's direct, all of it's ambiguous. And so, you know, I watched myself even here get, you know, I, I met women one night who made me afraid to go to Whiskey Jack's alone because, you know, God forbid a man do something to me. And I thought to myself, you know, that that is, that's infectious. You have infected me with fear. And as a result, for the next two or three days, I'm going to move around the world as somebody who is prey and as somebody who could potentially be a victim. And I'm not going to be in all of the cells of my body because I'm angry and sad. And I mean, now I'm angry, right? But before when I was 16, I was just depressed, you know? And so it's, I think mothers take a lot of responsibility. I have, I have a mother that um, is just extraordinary in her capacity to show up for all of my questions, all of my ranting and raving, you know, those days when you just suddenly, you have a daughter, they just, they burst into tears. They're so frustrated, you know, and they just cry and cry and cry. I've done this millions of times with my mom and we've gone to therapy and we've had conversations and we've, you know, and I think it all stems from she loves me dearly, which is great, but it more stems from she wants to be her best self. And that is probably the saving grace of it. And so I think that the real question is, can we make women, or not make women, but can we encourage women to be their best selves? And that means, you know, you get to be dirty, you get to be ugly, you get to tell bad truths, you know, you get to, my mom has this great thing where she says, you know, if I die, you have to burn all my journals. And I was like, absolutely not. I mean, I'm very sentimental and I, I'll probably, you know, encase them in frames and what have you. And, you know, she was like, no, you have to, because, you know, some things are written in there that are not nice about you and you aren't supposed to hear that, but I had to say them. And I said them, you know, during, you know, three pages a day or whatever. And, and you know, maybe by the time she passes away when she's 210, I will be allowed to read them. But it was an important distinction that she made where she is still the mother, I'm still the daughter, and she gets to have her ugliness, but she doesn't have to put it on me, you know? I don't know if ugliness is the right word, but. All right, I think we'll end there, Kate, and I'm hoping you'll come back because there are many issues that we touched on that I'd like to talk more. We need to talk about your singing <laughs> and that career and the way men, women have you found to move through the world, which you just touched on, uh, your experience with Whis Whiskey Jacks, and how you saw that women are moving through the world. So I'm hoping I'll, I'll get you to come back another time. If you want to learn more about Kate Cox, you can connect with her on catchandreleaseme.com. Thank you so much. This is It's Relationship. This is KDPI 89.3 FM Ketchum. So when World War Three starts, I can look back and know what I was thinking. I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if I could have all the people I love the most in my life close outside of when I'm dreaming? I wish.